You're listening to Addicted to Growth. Join us each week as we sit down with sales, marketing, and revenue leaders on the front lines of innovation. New insights, new playbooks, new tech, new lessons. Step forward into growth and development or backwards into safety and security. The choice is yours. Let's get into the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Addicted to Growth. And Kevin and I are super excited today because we have Andy Paul on, who is the host of the Sales Enablement Podcast. And, you know, we're super excited to chat with him today for a number of reasons, but I, I won't bore you guys with any interest because hopefully <laughs> most of you know who he is already. And if not, uh, Andy, feel free to, you know, share a quick little, you know, snippet about who you are, and then we'll dive right into the show. Yeah, uh, well, host the Sales Enablement Podcast, but yeah, I've <laughs> been in business and sales for a long time, and just sort of long, long history like a lot of people, but uh, really for the last 20 years, I started my own company 20 years ago. Um, I'd spent previous 25 years in, in tech, venture-funded startups, growing companies as VP of sales and so on, and started my company with the goal of helping small companies understand how to compete for big deals against big companies because that's what i've done basically and for a number of the startups i was with they were we were no name no brand <laughs> no track record no brand name and we were selling large complex communication systems worth millions of dollars competing against the top tech companies in the world and yeah we won our fair share um maybe more than our fair share so oftentimes small companies are afraid to sort of take that step to you know how do I compete for a bigger piece of business against a bigger company? And that's, that's what, you know, I started my company with the goal of doing that. Did that for, uh, you know, 10, 12 years and then, uh, decided to write my first book. And that sort of sent me off on a different, a different track, uh, where I still was doing some consulting, but it was more about public speaking and, and, um, wrote a second book, started the, the podcast, my first podcast, which is really the same podcast. It's just, we changed the name um, because my, started that in 2015 called Accelerate with Andy Paul. And then earlier this year, my podcast was acquired. So we rebranded, uh, went from Accelerate to Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. And uh, yeah, here I am. That's amazing. I, I think it's it's really cool. So so the, the the podcast even accelerate that was still around the topics around sales enablement primarily, or was it really just around anything, all things revenue growth? Yeah, which yeah. So I mean, we define sales enablement, and I do as you know, sort of anything and everything that enables a seller to have a, a knowledge based interaction, sales interaction with the buyer that the buyer finds to be valuable you know, the buyer acknowledges is valuable. So it's not just, yeah, hey, let's serve up this piece of content. It's like, yeah, is this, is this something that has value to the buyer? So how do we enable sellers to put themselves in that situation or to put sellers in that situation where every time they interact with the buyer, there's something of value there for the buyer. The buyer feels to be valuable. And, and oftentimes that metric for the buyer of value is, as a result of this interaction, have we moved closer to making our decision? And that can just serve you a baseline right there. You know, if there isn't any value in that interaction, then you've wasted their time. It's interesting because I think a lot of companies all have their own sort of unique definition of, of sales enablement. Yes. It, right. And so when, and I, and Travis and I, I think we, we found ourselves talking to a lot of people within the function. And so um, usually the first question is like, what does sales enablement mean to you? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and obviously it's, it's an evolving, it's an evolving world. So how, I mean, especially too, with this unique landscape, we look, we, we live in today. It's, it's a very much a remote world for, for a lot of companies. How, how is that changing the landscape of sales enablement? Well, I think it's getting broader, which it should, because mm -hmm. originally people think oh, that's sort of this three-legged stool. We've got training, coaching, and content. And I think there are lots of still companies sort of focused on one aspect of that or another. And yeah, in my mind, it's, it's as I said, it's anything and everything that enables a seller to have these knowledge-based interactions with buyers. 
that the buyers acknowledge are valuable to them. And, and that's really a critical part is, is if, <laughs> I've been it's consistent with everything I've written and talked about and so on is that if you're interacting with the buyer and there's no value in it for the buyer from the buyer's perspective, then yeah, it was a waste of time. And so I wrote about this in my first book is, is buyers at one level or another, we all do this is anytime we're interacting with somebody, we say, was this worth my time? Right. We're calculating a, an ROI on the time. And so if you're a seller and you're interacting with a buyer and you have multiple interactions that have no ROI for the buyer, meaning you're not helping them move closer to the make a purchase decision as a result of, it doesn't mean that you know, you're making a stage progression or anything like that. It's just they're closer. You know, they've made progress toward making it. In the absence of that, there was no value for them. Then they're going to say, hmm, talking to Andy, is that really worth my time? Uh, you get too many of those and they're going to say no because you know, they've got a very simple job for buyers. They're saying, look, I'm trying to quickly gather information to make an informed decision with the least investment of time, money, and resources possible. That's what companies want to do. I mean, don't, you know, company, you don't, you don't give an, a, an action item to somebody to say, well, let's go evaluate purchasing this or deciding whether we need to purchase this and yeah, spend as much time as you want. <laughs> right it's not what happens not right? happening. yeah so you defined we got a project we want to get this done in this period of time and but hey if you could help me get it done in half the time whoa or half the investment of time and resources on our part that's powerful that has real value to me that's interesting too because I think one of the things that I think about a lot and I, Kevin and I joke about this a lot, especially with like the rise of live streaming and the way that people are just changing how they buy. I like joke and said like there should be a QVC for B2B buyers where people just log on and then they could actually have recommendations given to them in real time because instead of having, you know, a VP of sales evaluate all the different um, sales enablement platforms and sales acceleration tools like sales loft, outreach, et cetera, every well, single year or whatever, however often they do that. It's like, Hey, like go to somebody who's trusted and has experience working with these systems. And like, they'll take care of you within a day. You don't need a three to six month sales cycle to figure out how to roll out a new yeah. platform. And that's yeah. just my thoughts. So I'm like, I'm curious to get your take on that. Yeah. Well, first of all, just, you know, full disclosure is my podcast is owned by ring DNA, which is the leading sales engagement platform. But, um, so Make sure we include that in the conversation since I'm sure someone's listening. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that, that I, I, we should not to stumble over my words here, but we, we don't want to make too much of the changes that are happening right now. I mean, it's profound in the way that this has affected us. But, you know, I saw something on LinkedIn the other day. Somebody quoted something from a Gartner research update saying that I don't know some large fraction of you know, like 20% or 25% of CROs are saying that they're permanently shifting field sales to to virtual and my first reaction to that was well yeah but let's ask them again in 12 months right because um, you know the famous quote from Nils Bohr who's a famous was a Nobel Prize winning physicist from Denmark who said you know Prediction is hard, especially when it's about the future. Um, and, and that's where we're at. You know, everybody's rushing to conclusions about what this next normal, the new normal is going to be. And I like to always call it the next normal because, yeah, we'll have a new normal now. We're going to have a new one in six months, another one in 12 months. And, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, people sort of had to ask themselves, why do buyers want to talk to salespeople? And, you know, they talk to them because they need to. Right? If they don't need to, they don't. But they talk to sellers because they need to. They need a perspective. They need an insight. They need some information. They need something. Uh, and if you look at the sort of uh, famous, what's well, not in my mind, famous Gartner diagram about the buyer journey, which came out about 18 months ago, almost two years ago at this point, what they call their famous spaghetti diagram. It's this flow chart of the B2B buying process. And it's a hugely complex flow chart not linear, not straight line at all. And if you dig through it, you find the word sales is mentioned once. Now, 
unfortunately, that's not very good because that reflects the buyer's perspective, what you know, the value they find interacting with sellers. So if you find yourself in a position where they're willing to talk to you, it's because they, they need to talk to you. <laughs> if they don't need to talk to you, they're not going to. So when you have that opportunity, then you need to be able to provide something of value to help them move forward. So I think that this is, this is the thing about, you know, we talk about change buying behaviors. I, I don't think this event, the pandemic, necessarily changes it dramatically. I think it might amplify and accelerate some trends that are happening anyway. But the bottom line is, is when sellers, if they're thinking, gosh, we're being disenfranchised by the sellers, by the buyers, right? They're not wanting to talk to us as much so on. That's their vote on the value they perceive you're giving them. That's all it is. It's not technology's enabling certain things and so on. Yeah, it has a little bit of a factor, but the bottom line is if they're not talking to you, it's because they don't think you have any value. And, and what role do you think that the amount of content and the, and the access to content, what role does that play in, in how the buyer's evolving today? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's... Um, I think that's overestimated in general. Okay. So this is my perspective. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, I, it's, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, obviously I started my career well before the internet existed, before email, before all this stuff. Um, and selling, I said, large multi-million dollar systems to companies around the world. And content was never the issue, right? It was, it was... Yeah, we need to help them with the, you know, a certain perspective. They need certain insights. It was it was things that we delivered personally, that that had the value to them, and yeah, I think people think now, well, with content, we can sort of substitute that, or somehow. And I find it sort of interesting that at a time when content's so readily available, that people think a shortage of content is really the issue. And when again, my experience has been is yeah, people. It was never the issue. It was, how can I help you? So I think content sort of becomes a surrogate for the salespeople because salespeople, the buyers are sort of saying, yeah, salespeople can't give me what I need. And, and this is always, this is the challenge for sellers, right? Is, is we've had these, these research reports that have since been proven absolutely untrue by Forrester who predicted five years ago that B2B sales, you know, a huge chunk of B2B sales would disappear. In fact, B2B sales employment is up. Um, but there's still the same pressure as we look at a future with, um, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and guided selling systems is, yeah, what is, what is the value of what you can bring as a human, as an individual human to the buyer? And that's, that's the bar that you have to, you have to hurdle, right? I mean, a, a couple of years ago it was, hey, are you smarter than what's on your website? Right? Can you add more value to the buyer than what's on your website? If you can't do that, then they don't need to talk to you. This is, this is just sort of the, the evolution of the trend. Now, machines aren't good at empathy. <laughs> they aren't good at being creative. I mean, there's things that, that there are real limitations that say, look, I should be taking advantage of where being human is an advantage. And that is in that interpersonal relationship that you build, the connection you build with somebody, the trust and the credibility, which doesn't come from any other source, but this interpersonal interaction. And it's not, right? So, I mean, obviously we've seen uh, scaling of what people are feeling comfortable buying without human interaction. But, you know, there's always going to be that place where the humans have a role to play. And so as an individual, you say, say, okay, how am I enabling myself? Not necessarily how am I waiting for somebody to enable me? How am I enabling myself to be that source of value for buyers? So you, you did a couple of things with that statement. One, you, you, you made me have a breakthrough in my mind because one of the things that um, – uh, a couple of our guests came on and shared about uh, Morgan shared it. Uh, Chris Walker shared it a little bit. And it's almost like, because w- the way you positioned the whole content, not being the answer, it made me laugh because then I thought about what made me successful and like how I, you know, develop business throughout my mm-hmm. career. And it literally was always in one message. If it connected with the person on the other side, 
They took the meeting, and if that meeting went well, then it went into a proposal, and it was good. I didn't need a full series of a podcast to walk someone through how to do whatever those things are that I was selling to them. I'm, and I'm laughing because it's like, oh, my God. We have been almost subconsciously positioned to think that everybody needs to be creating more content because of the trend and rise from people that are creating content. So, well, yes. <laughs> it, which yes. it, but saying it out loud is one of those things where i was like oh like i literally wrote breakthrough like <laughs> because like again it, unless you like talk unless you like actually say it out loud you, like you i can hear what you're saying but i really don't actually comprehend it until i say it back and so now i'm like oh wait so punchline in my head like news update don't provide so much content to your sales reps to the extent that it becomes a crutch and they think that just because they have content and that they have, let's say, you know, great snippets from the sales engagement podcast to send to their buyers that that's going to do the selling for them. That's not the answer. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you think about it is, is so when you're, what's the first decision a buyer makes in their buying process, you know, let's say after your first call with them, what's what's the first decision they make and everything so this is universal i'm assuming it's do we do we continue is there another conversation like is there an actual next step yeah but even before that the first decision they make is why kevin why travis right yeah. it's not yeah. it's not why your company it's why you right why should i trust you why should i invest my time in you why should i give you credibility yeah, that's the first decision people are making. I mean, it's because you are that representative of the company. You, it's not, there was a study, somebody, had, I think maybe published in the Harvard Business Review, now sometime within the last five, six years, something like this, that, that B2B buyers by pretty large margin put more trust in the individual than in the company they work for in terms of factoring that into their, their decision-making process. So, so you are the critical part. You are the front first line of differentiation. This is not a new concept. It's been this way forever. And so this first decision people are making is, is you. So I, I, I tell the story, and it's going to be in my, my new book, is Scott, early in my career, as I, I was selling computer systems to uh, mid-sized businesses for accounting purposes. And I was, went into cold call this um, CEO of a big home builder in the San Francisco Bay area. And I didn't expect he was going to you know, see me. So I was sort of shocked when the receptionist said, Oh yeah, just wait a second. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and, and uh, so he comes out and he's this very courtly old school gentleman, very well dressed. And he takes me to his office and, and um, he's got this big clean, massive desk and nothing on the top of it. And we, Sort of says, okay, so, you know, what do you got? And I sort of launch into my pitch, and and after a minute, he sort of holds up his hand, says, stop. And he, he reaches into the drawer, pulls out this deck of business cards, about two inches high, wrapped with rubber band, undoes them, and sort of spreads them out like a deck of cards. And he goes, these are all the computer salespeople that have been in my office in the last year. And I didn't buy from any of them. And I'm looking at him, it's like, Every other salesperson in my office had been in there and so on. And, and he said, he stopped and he said, so tell me, why should I buy from you? It hadn't really occurred to me at that point <laughs> because he was very specifically saying, why should I buy from you? And I had no idea, right? I couldn't answer the question. And I was really fortunate that over a course of about, yeah, roughly a year, he kept meeting with me. Apparently, he's, he's, I had this in two instances early in my career where I had customers basically mentor me and tell me how to sell to them. And this was one of them. And yeah, and a year later, I got an order. So yeah, you have to be able to, that's the first, that was a, really like this light bulb going off in my head. It's like, oh, it's about me. Now this is, yeah, people have written about this for years. People buy you. Well, they, they do. I mean, I was a history major out of college. I spent the you know, first 25 years of my career selling, for the most part, very complex technical technology products um, to companies all over the world, large enterprises all over the world. How'd I do it? 
wasn't because I was a technical expert. I certainly understood the product and I was, you know, pretty competent for a non, for a lay person. But, it, you know, for me, it was always about I could make that connection with people and I could build that trust and that credibility, or at least part credibility. And then I knew how to substantiate that and build it with bringing other people in. But, yeah, that that's how it started. They answered that question of why you. I was like, yeah, I could answer that question about why, Andy. And I focused on that. And that then I was differentiated from everybody else in terms of the buying experience they're having. And yeah, Gardner talked about this in the Challenger sale. You know, 53% of the buyer's decision based on the buying experience. I think it's more than that, actually. But but nonetheless, it's a substantial part. And we want to talk about buying behaviors have changed and so well, yeah buying behaviors have changed but the way people think about how they make their decisions has not right we've evolved over 100,000 years and as human beings and you know we haven't evolved in the last 20 30 years right we still make decisions the same way things that influence us are still the same and so you know, we have to just be cognizant of the fact that, you know, this is still a human to human business. And that's really the important part, right? If you want to say, look, what are the things that are going to make a difference in a sale? It's not more content, it's more you. And it sounds like throughout your career, there was a real, there's a large element of self-awareness, right? Like you said, like, mm. I may not have been the most technical person, right? But, but I was, was that sort of a, a conscious effort through your your own enablement of yourself to say like to really reflect and, and understand, hey, here, here's where I think my skill sets lend really strong for me. Here's where I may not be so strong and lean into this, stay away from that. Like, Well, I've, I've, I've said in the past that, you know, I graduated from college with as a history major with no discernible job skills. So I went into sales um, and, you know, I had two things, an insatiable curiosity and a competitive streak a mile wide. So to answer your point is really the, the curiosity, right? Is every time I encountered a challenge for me is like I look back on the jobs I chose and the motivation was always, yeah, this seems like to be a great thing to learn, right? Mm. And when I look back at you know the the memories of things I've done, it was always the new challenge. You know, I, I couldn't yeah, you know, remember the size of any commission checks or anything to save my life, but I can remember the people I impacted, the customers I worked with. Those were the things that were of value, and and so for me, is my career sort of consists of thinking, okay, what be would this be the most interesting challenge for me now? And yeah, I, yeah, I got into the satellite communications business. I was there for about fifteen years. I don't know, squat about it. You know, the first, first <laughs> week I was, I was reading, reading a book by this guy, James Martin, who was just a famous technical author back in the day, uh, you know, about satellite communications. Um, turned out I didn't, you know, didn't need to be the expert in it. But, but nonetheless, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, satellite's cool. Um, and then it was like, after I got into it, it was then an opportunity to start I'd never sold major accounts before then, you know, learn how to sell major accounts and, you know, just sort of this progression of challenges and looking at new companies. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's this, I then, you know, joined the startup in the satellite communications business that was pretty raw startup, but they'd been in business for a few years doing mostly defense work and hired me to start a commercial business for them. And they had this interesting sort of base of technology, but they're no products. And so, the even though I was VP, I was individual contributor. I was the first one in the in the door, and the CEO says, "So, I said, you know, what do you, what do we want to do?" He says, "Well, you can sell anything you want. You know, we had nothing. You can sell anything you want. It's just the customer has to pay for all the R and D." This bootstrap company, we didn't have, you know, and we didn't know. So yeah, so I spent the first most of the first year. Took about a year to close the first deal, but it was a two million dollar deal with a big tech company in, in the southeast, and, and uh, yeah, they funded the whole development of R and D and everything. So yeah, was that that was based on? I'm not bragging about me, but it's largely based yeah on me, right? Yeah, 
because we had nothing. So that's sort of reinforcement, just the power that you can have as an individual if you're willing to have an open mind, if you have the right perspective about what you're trying to do in sales. And and this is, I think this is something that, yeah, we need to spend more time thinking about as a sales industry, which is that we always focus on, yeah, these sort of tangible yeah, let's train people on certain skills and let's train people, you know, da, 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 da. It's like, I don't think skills is really the issue, right? I think it's understanding what it is you, you're doing, right? Having the right perspective of what your job is. You know, I ask this question when I'm speaking to large groups is, okay, so you're in sales, what's your job? And everybody's, yeah, raising hand, it's, yeah, well, it's to persuade the customer or convince the customer to, to buy what we're selling type thing. Uh, no, your job is to help the customer make a purchase decision. That's your role in life, just to help somebody make a decision. And that's a huge change of perspective, right? It's it's more purpose-driven. And yeah, that's been shown by research to be a, a stronger motivator for, for sellers than, hey, I want to close this deal. And so it's, it's, yeah, for us, it's really just, we have to think about this. If we really want to have more consistent performance of sellers, this, it needs to be unambiguously clear to them what they're trying to do day in, day out. And if you can make that less ambiguous and be real crystal clear about it, uh, in my experience, it has a huge, huge difference, not just for me personally, but, you know, teams I've built and so on. It's like, yeah, we're here to serve. And then you get the people who are the curious, open-minded problem solvers who want to be part of that team as opposed to the hunter, the extrovert, the close, quote-unquote closer, you know, which to me is such a huge myth. And does that boil down to hiring the right types of people, right? Or is there... Is there also potentially some type of flaw in terms of how sales is, how they earn their living or how they're measured on performance, right? Oh, like, yeah. is there all, the, all those things? Yes. All of them. Right. But you well, know. yeah. So let's just start at the top level is, is um, increasingly advocating that we just have to rethink sales entirely because we're still Despite the trappings of all the technology around and this, you know, people want to talk about modern sellers, we're still selling and managing sales the same way we have for 100 years, fundamentally. And so, yeah, it needs to, needs to change. And, yeah, you talked about hiring, for instance. You know, one perspective that sort of always sort of baffles people when I talk to them because it seems so obvious is, you know, you look at your typical job description, and you know, you see hunter, closer, da 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 da. President's and <laughs> and I and I said, Well, what's what's the one question a customer will never ask you? I'll ask you, what's Are the one you question? a hunter? No, no. Well, no, but what's not too dissimilar, but what's the one thing they'll ask you? We'll never ask you. They'll never ask you, hey Andy, could you be more salesy? Yeah. So we hire, we write these job descriptions for people to be salesy. We train them to be salesy when what we should be doing is saying, look, we want to hire people that have attributes that our buyers need in order to make a decision. And it's just a change of perspective. And and so these are types of things that that we need to start looking at and embracing as a profession, as an industry sales is yeah, maybe we're just doing it completely backwards. Yeah, I'll give you another example. So this yeah, one of my <laughs> one of my rants I get on, but is yeah, we've all seen <laughs> we've all seen the reports about you know sales performance has been dropping year over year, blah, 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 blah. And but if you ask sellers, okay, your own personal experience, notwithstanding, what's been the biggest influence? in terms of your own development as a salesperson? Has it been a coach? Has it been your peers? Has it been customers? Has it been uh, the company provided sales training? Or has it been your own personal investment in reading and listening to podcasts and so on? And this is completely unscientific, but based on people I've been asking, and a survey we did online once on LinkedIn is, yeah, the number one answer typically is a coach or a mentor. And so, okay. 
and we know from research that's been done multiple occasions about the value of sales coaching, that the single most important thing you can do in terms of uplift of individual performance is effective coaching. Now, as an industry, we spend $20 billion a year on sales training, of which maybe 5%, we'll say generously, 5% is devoted to training managers. Now, if managers are the single largest influence on the development of the individuals, and if uh, we know from research that sales coaching is important, why don't we flip that on its head? Why don't we spend 95% of our training dollars on training coaches to be or managers to be better coaches and stop training sellers. That's interesting. So, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, but think about it. I mean, we're, we're investing all this money and performance is going down. So right. clearly something's amiss. So why don't we just change it? Split it 50-50, all right? It doesn't have to go 90-10, but 50-50. Yeah, there, I had a guest on my show a couple months ago, a guy named Peter Economy, who wrote, writes for Inc. Magazine about management. And he had just published a book about first-time man, first managers. And, you know, the average age at which someone gets their first management training, a manager gets their first management training, is age 42. Whoa. After they've, after, they've, after they've been in a manager for 10 years. So that... Yeah, that's a so so, I, so uh, we talk about sales enablement. Screw sales enablement. How about management enablement? Manager enablement. That's what we should be focused on because that has the single biggest impact on performance. So it's so such that, a that's such a bold stat. Well, uh, we're not going out and uh, we're going in deeper because this is yeah. <laughs> so Andy. It, it, so if we're we're creating this world where people now understand that management enablement is a thing, like we're just going there. Sure. What sorts of things would you bring into that world, and what like frameworks or you know things would you put in place if you were leading that? Well, I would I would take a step back first and go even deeper, if you will, and so. <laughs> you guys ever watch the show Billions? Yeah, that's my jam. Okay. So why doesn't every sizable sales organization have a Wendy on staff? It is so funny you say that. And I've written about this on, on LinkedIn. Most I mean, of them honestly don't know that Wendy's exist, at least what I've come across. Well, why not have a mindset coach? So oh. So my example is and is, you know, if you look at any professional sports organization, which is, you know, these are performance-based organizations, right? Just like sales is, is they've gone so much further and faster in terms of setting up the staffs in order to support the development of the performance improvement than business has, right? So, you know, you look, I'm a huge soccer fan. You look at a, uh, one of the top soccer clubs, let's say Liverpool's my club. And, but you look at the coaching staff, almost any like premier league team, or even major league soccer team, and they've got specific performance coaches, you know, they've got, uh, you know, fitness performance, they've got, you know, strength performance, they got health and nutrition performance coaches, they got experts in each of these areas designed to help the performance of including mindset coaches, uh, the performance of the individuals on the field. What we do is we promote some young punk in a management, and I was that young punk. I mean, I was 22 years, 23 years old and managing 13 people, what I know about it. Yet we assume that you know, this VP of sales that is this heroic figure that has all this knowledge about performance oh. management, performance improvement, mindset, motivation. They're the expert on all this. And it's like, bullshit. <laughs> they don't know any of it. <laughs> So, but this is, the, this is the mythology that we continue to perpetrate. So why not wake up to the, the, 20, the late 20th century, let alone the 21st century in business and say, yeah, we're going to change how we've structured this. And initially there might be some additional cost we have to incur, but we're going to get specialists in here. I mean, I'll go so far as to say, why should managers be coaches? Hire coaches. We can hire people who are trained to be performance coaches. Why does a manager have to be a performance coach? We're just stuck in the past. I said, we're managing sales the way we did 100 years ago. Stop. Stop. And the fact is, you know, it's, it's being, uh, you know, these, these trends are being perpetrated by the younger generation in sales that are so in love with technology, they think can take the place of, of the human that we're ignoring 
you know, you can't drive performance through metrics. It's a person thing, human to human. Let's get somebody who's capable of working with an individual to make that happen. It's typically not a manager because we don't train them or enable them to do that. And you can, as I just said, you can also say, is it even reasonable to expect them to? It's interesting. You, you sorry, have a sorry, lot of data. <laughs> so, like, so here's a question for you because you, sure. you have a lot of data in, in a lot of the things you talk about, which is awesome. And this topic has come up on on a previous episode about, you know, there's this concept where a lot of companies are failing because they're trying to grow through just more bodies, more headcount. And it's like, let's throw quota at growth. Let's throw more bodies at trying to take this from here to there. And they're not realizing, you know, like to your point, there's the, the performance, the training, the enablement, that's kind of, that, that's what's going to take them to that next level. Have you seen any research that can show and say, Hey, listen, by adding a salesperson, you get this percentage of return or by adding a sales enablement, a trainer, a coach, something that's not going to carry a quota. So it's going to be your overhead. Mm. This is the type of return you get on that, that headcount versus quota no. carrying headcount. No, because no one's gone that direction. That. No one's gone that direction. But I think that, so I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago who's uh, got a research company and, and they do look a lot of performance in sales, especially in the SaaS world. And, and he and I were talking and I said, well, you know, here's, here's my general theory is that I look at productivity in sales a little bit differently. So to me, productivity is productivity. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. It's, it's a rate of output per unit of investment, right? So for me in sales, and I've actually managed teams using this, is, is your productivity is dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time. Now, that is a metric of effectiveness for sales. So, <laughs> so I was asking this guy, I said, well, my guess is that the basic productivity of a salesperson is no higher today than it was 40 years ago in using that metric. And technology notwithstanding, because one of the things we've, for people who have written about the impact of technology on, on sort of productivity and white collar professions, is it found that the big technology that made the hugest difference was email. And once we got past email, the needle has barely moved. You know, productivity growth has went from sort of 3% then to sort of like 1%. It's been there sort of like almost close to 20 years now. So adding more technology doesn't seem to be making us more productive. Um, even though we use their word productivity widely in sales, but it's usually interpreted as, well, they made 60 cold calls today versus 50, thus they're more productive, which is not the case, right? I mean, if you're running a factory and you're building, let's say, axles for cars and you build 100 per hour, but only 50 of them are usable, is your productivity 100 axles per hour or 50 axles per hour? Yeah, we don't look at that in sales. In sales, that'd be, it's oh, 100, 100 axles per hour. <laughs> it's like, but it didn't lead to anything productive. So we have to, we have to just change our mindset. There's another issue, right? What should we, how should we categorize a call that doesn't lead to anything that ultimately results in an order? Is that a productive call or an unproductive call? And then how do we coach differently based on that? So <laughs> I said, we can go down this rabbit hole forever because I just... And I just find it strange that you know, here I am, somebody much closer to the end of my career than the beginning of the career. That is, and I have other people, sort of similar cohort of people that are saying they're the most passionate about the fact we have to tear down, start all over again, because we're just we're in these habits that just haven't changed, and technology sort of amplifies the bad habits, hasn't created new ones. So. Is being someone that's a part of this, I, I guess I'd say I'd identify myself as the rising generation of like future sales leaders, right? I'm mm. younger in my career. I'm going to be in this for a while. Um, what sorts of advice would you give someone like me or anybody else listening that is looking to, to just take, you know, one or two of the things that you said a little bit more seriously in implementing. So something like a mindset coach, right? And, and I wanted to tie this back to the previous thought of um, the way that people just approach sales enablement in general and how you, you know, you would have a management 
um, enablement, right? And so, because like, that's a thing that like people right now, they don't know that they need to buy this, right? And so <laughs> yeah. as, as I think about this, it's like, okay, A, how do you get people, you know, understanding that this is a thing and it sounds just more of like an awareness sort of play, but um, what advice would you give someone like me that's, you know, kind of coming up in the game? Yeah, challenge the status quo. And don't be confused to think that just because I said we've put this veneer of technology on things that's actually changing underneath it's still the same so we need to challenge it you know it's it's um yeah i i I like to say is you know what's the one trait that that in my experience that the top performers and sales have in common and they've all been rule breakers not unethical not illegal but they they saying look yeah the way you've set this up Mr. Manager of the sales process doesn't really work for me completely. So I'm going to sort of do my thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can fire me. But if, if it does, yeah, give me the freedom to keep doing what I'm doing. And that's what I did in my career is, is yeah, I was fortunate to have bosses to give me that leeway, even in venture funded companies, to go do things the way I thought was best. And I, I sort of got this reputation as one boss came up to me and said, so don't you ever just say yes to anything? I answered, nope, <laughs> because this is, <laughs> this is my business, right? I mean, you can, you can give me advice about what to do, but if I think it's bad advice and I'm not going to, and I think there's a better way to do it, you can fire me if that doesn't work out, but this is my livelihood on the line. And we need more people to sort of take that risk and to push back. You know, I talked about this on an episode of my show a couple weeks ago is, you know, at some point sellers, you know, the sales world's become certainly an inside sales model where you got managers that are trying to drive everything by metrics is your role as a salesperson at some point is just to say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. You know, we manage, you know, it's the irony of these, these days is so many of these sales organizations and companies are devoted to disrupting markets run these really rigid compliance-based sales processes. And we're not enabling people to become the best version of themselves. So if you're not, if the system's not enabling, you as a seller have to take responsibility for it. If you want to have a career, if you want to succeed to the level you do, you want to. And again, just say, no, I'm going to do it this way. Tell your boss, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. This is the way I'm going to do it. Cause I think this will work better. There's a risk you take with it. The risk is you're wrong. You get fired. You go find another job. But if you're confident that you've got a better way to do it and you've been work testing it and so on, Go do it. So that's the advice I give us. You know, challenge the status quo at every step along the way. I, you know, I joke. You know, I was a child of the '60s. This is what we did. We question. You know, the whole theme was we question authority. Same. Not the right. '60s, but I question authority. I question authority. That's what this is. You know, one thing that just <laughs> you know sort of drives me nuts. I'm so right now I'm mentoring a a group of young sellers that you know sort of emerging thought leaders. But I tell people, I said, you know, when you look at, go look at sort of the best-selling sales books in the last five years, and they're all written by, primarily by white men over the age of 50. <laughs> why? Well, that doesn't reflect what's going on. Is why, why, where's the young thought leaders coming up who have original, insightful ideas about how sales should change that are writing books and you know, saying this is how things should be going forward. There are very few of them. We need more. And so this, like this is a group. You called me out to write a book on my podcast. I did. Yeah. <laughs> both, both of you. Yeah. Okay. Just confirming. Yeah, I I'll, help, I'll help you. I'll help you because we need that, right? We need this new, fresh perspective on, and that's really what it is. It's a perspective on how we, how we sell. And... You know, it's, it's, I think it's just essential. I mean, I want you to buy my new book when it comes out too, but yeah. <laughs> but I, I shouldn't feel like at this stage of my career, like I'm on the leading edge. And I, I believe I am. Yeah. You know, I sort of got a sense of what I'm thinking about, but we need more, more participation. And, and I think it's just, yeah, question authority. Yeah, I I really like that because I I did it by accident. It was it was almost as if like I was the kid in class that didn't know that this was not how you were supposed to do it, and I just kept doing it. Yeah, 
and and then it got to the point to where like everybody just knew that if it was literally every company I've ever been at. Yeah, if there's an all hands meeting and Travis has a question about, it doesn't even matter. It could be a product question. It could be an IT question, you know, a roadmap question. I'm going to put my face in front of the microphone and ask either A, and this is, I guess, what it comes to just being curious. I'm going to ask A, something that everybody else in the room is thinking, but no one has the actual balls to go up and ask. Yes, right. The first, I, that's, there's always like a go-to list for those. So right. that's there. And then there's the left field. Like I'm going to ask the CEO a crazy question in front of everybody that he probably doesn't want to answer, but should, because Absolutely. I'm just curious about it. And so like, yeah. that, that was always me. And it's yeah. still, so yeah. It, it, yeah. I had the same thing. I mean, I was just I'm not afraid to, to ask if it doesn't make sense. Right. So why, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. I think the why is like the right question, right? Like, uh, and and I encourage it with my teams. Like, whenever we throw out something new, like it's okay to challenge. Like, you should ask, "Why are we doing this?" Because there may be a better way, and and mm-hmm. there might be. And and I think that's the unique thing. It's that you know, it doesn't matter if you're the the SDR who's been in the seat for for three months or you've been there for 10, five, you know, five, 10 years. Like it doesn't matter who you are. You may have that cool, unique idea. That's going to kind of change everything. I think people are just afraid of getting fired or, or they're just not. It starts with managers though. See, they're the ones who are afraid of getting fired. See, this is, this is why, yeah. in my belief is we've got these sort of rigid sales processes and rigid sales systems is because it starts with them you know, they're afraid of being fired. So it's safer to manage the metrics than to take Mm -hmm. a risk and say, well, I'm going to work with Travis and Kevin individually and really mentor them. And maybe they got a different path here, right? That's, that's maybe not quite in line with what we're doing. No, that, that seems a little risky to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, we've got this process and if, and if somebody fails uh, and it's in the process, well, you know, we implemented the process and the process must be wrong. Process works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is it, I definitely agree. I think there's a component of that. Or back to like the individual contributor side of things. Do you also think there's an element of just like, it sounds like you were very confident in saying, yeah, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way, but I'm confident my way is going to work. Right. I wasn't always, and, I wasn't always confident. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I was always very good at cloaking it in confidence. I mean, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> but but <laughs> as my as my ex-wife will tell you. But um, but yeah, no, it it uh, there were times. Sure, I was I knew I was taking a risk, but it's just I couldn't do it the other way, right? Yeah. I just yeah, I had to do it the way that that I felt comfortable doing it, and what it wasn't even felt comfortable. It was it was the way. I thought it had the highest probability of being succeeding is really mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah. And yeah. oftentimes that stretched me quite a bit. I mean, but yeah. it's, it's, uh, you have to be willing to, to do that. Go for it. You gotta go for it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's again, to me, that's what defines top performers is they take those risks and do things a little different, have a different perspective on, on what they're doing and how they're serving the customer. And, and, yeah, let's try new things constantly as well, right? As as you have to try yeah. new things. Yeah, and so I, I, you know, for me, it's just I, I get concerned because I feel like we, in the way we actually set things up, we discourage learning oftentimes in sellers because again, we want them just to follow the process. Yeah, we'll do coaching on this particular call, but and that's fine. I mean, I love coaching. That's coaching be very effective, but are we are we reinforcing it? Right? Are we then letting people go out and experiment some on their own? Is is yeah? How are we enabling people to to you know, For instance, you know, I think on for training, you know, as you guys probably guess, I'm a huge fan of the way most training's done. But there's this ton of information out there for people. So why not instead of spending all of our money on company supplied training, why not give people stipends? Look, here's a thousand dollars to spend on your development this year. You know, we're no longer going to hire, you know, Andy to come in and give a big expensive keynote address at our sales kickoff meeting and then say, yeah, that fulfills our sales training obligation for the year. You know, here's, you know, it's $1,000 per person. Uh, yeah, we've defined a list of, you know, online courses you can take, da, da, you certain, you know, you create certain standards mm-hmm. and then people have to go 
sample everything that's out there. There's way more available out there that people could try to find something that, you know, aligns with the way they want to do things that they think is more effective. Let's put it back on the sales person. We'll give you the money. You have to spend it. You got accountable for the results from it, mm -hmm. but you choose the things that you think will work best for you. I, I like that. And the only thing I'd add to just as a thought mm -hmm. is I also spent some time in the, the ed tech space. So like mm -hmm. just really getting familiar with, you know, individualized education plans, differentiated mm -hmm. learning. And that's something that I definitely am seeing that in sales, it's not a thing, right? Never have I ever heard a sales mentor say, oh, I have this individualized uh, sales program for each one of right. my reps. Right. Never, ever. Right. So very uh, rarely. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, at least I have not yet seen that yet. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? What was I going to say? Money, money, money. Oh, um, I do like that because it gives people the option and choice. And like when people have choices, like it, they just like the variety. But the one thing I would add is that like, I'm curious on how other people would then learn on their own. Because to, back to my ed tech point, most people don't one, most people don't understand how they best learn. And that's like a whole other category, which sure, I'm sure. rabbit hole with. So um, how well, I think you try it, and you try it. And then right. yeah, you adjust it. But yeah, it's not gonna be perfect, because no one's doing it to your point. No one's doing it. But, but why not try it? We yeah, there is substantial research to say that, you know, people are much more, more motivated to do things when they make the decision for what they're going to do, right? When they have ownership over the decision. So if you have ownership over this decision about how, which content you're going to consume and in what form and how you're going to do it, then chances are you're more likely to do things in a way that, that uh, help you and that you'll absorb and retain. And so... Again, but maybe, again, it's part of your accountability. That's part of this individual, you know, education plan that you put together with your manager and you're held accountable for spending this money, right? It's not, you're not going to bank it from quarter to quarter. You got to spend it. It's a stipend. Just go spend it. You're not spending it. That's a problem. Right. And again, it's just a different way of looking at how we get this job done of helping people get better. And I think that, you know, <laughs> we're just too focused on, skills and not focused enough on the right perspectives, the right mindsets, the right um, you know, mindset and perspectives that, that I think are really the differentiator. I think you train people up to a certain level skill-wise and you know, beyond that, improvements could be very small and incremental. But from a behavior, a habit, a mindset perspective, you can still make a lot of changes there that have a big difference. And so let's focus on those. And again, if you open up the world, which is out there, I mean, gosh, there's so much available online. A company couldn't begin to encompass, you know, create a catalog encompassing all that and teach all that and so on. So yeah, use assessments maybe to help people get started. Hey, this looks like the, the weaknesses. You could do mindset assessments and sales performance assessments, sales aptitude assessments and so on. And then say, yeah, this is what we suggest you do. Got it. And also, I, I just want to be cognizant of time. And, and um, I have one, I have one sure. big question, and then um, we can uh, wrap up. Or Kev, if you have sure. a more, more quick one. Um, but if you were to put something on a billboard based off of what you're currently f going through and thinking about the future of sales, sales enablement, right? And you're like, this is my mark. This is the Andy Paul billboard. What are you putting on that? <laughs> uh, more specialists mm. on the management side. I think that's really, really the thing I would start with. And it's got, that changes, you know, that requires some really fundamental changes on the part of how we structure and fund sales, but at least initially, but yeah. I mean, I, and also it's, it stems back to, in a lot of respects, is, you know, a lot of companies, SaaS companies, in based subscription-based, excuse me, in the B2B world, they, they operate on fairly, what I call modest win rates. So, you know, maybe 20% win rates on their most qualified prospects in the pipeline, one of every five. You know, so, you know, if you have a 5x pipeline coverage, your win rate's going to be the inverse of that. They're mostly reciprocal of that. Most people don't sort of <laughs> do the math, right? So, so and then you got, yeah, 
managers think, oh, we should be increasing our pipeline coverage. It's like, no, but you understand your win rate's going to drop as a result of that. So why not focus on no, which no one talks about us. Let's focus on increasing our win rate, right? Instead of spending all this money, put more stuff into the top of the funnel and then burn through these prospects, right? I mean, all these prospects we talk to that we don't win, you know, we're, we're sort awesome. of tanked. We're sort of tainting a little bit, right? There's going to be a certain time frame before we can go back to them and deal with them again. But why do we want to do that? Or we put them into the, we feed them to our competitors because we didn't win the deal. Mm. Yeah, I'd rather, and I've always operated this way. I, I want to operate on a smaller pipeline and win a much bigger percentage of those. Same. Because then I'm not exposing all these prospects and having them taken off the street by my competitors. So that's another big mindset change. And that then changes, well, how do you look at how you enable sellers? I mean, I think you almost have to sort of start there, you know, win more. And then, but I, it's not part of the mindset of most sales leaders these days. Yeah. You know, had a conversation with CRO of a very large SaaS company is, you know, what's your growth plan? Well, we're getting really good at, you know, converting inbound leads to, to, uh, to pipeline. So, we're just going to invest more in creating more leads at the top of the funnel. And you then said hire more. CRO said this to you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. And then, and then, and then, yeah, you know, we're going to hire more SDRs because, and then we're just going to, and it's like, I said, mm. but interesting. Yeah, sure. But instead of, I said, your win rate, it's like, I knew from talking to other people, it's like 19%. He goes, yeah. I said, well, why don't you spend some money to take that to, 25% this year and worry about less investments to lead gen and just make your sellers more effective. I mean, why, why, why are you throwing all this opportunity away? If you've got somebody that's a qualified prospect in my book, if I ever had a qualified prospect, I was going to win it. Right? Yeah. You ain't going to off the phone with me if you're qualified and not buy you. Mm -mm. Right now. Of course I didn't win all, of course I didn't win all of them, but, right. but that was the mindset, right? But exactly. if I've got, if I have five, if I have to have five qualified prospects for every one I win, well, I couldn't service them appropriately. I couldn't help them the way they needed the help. I didn't have the time. So I had, if I had, for me, I was like a dog with a bone. If I got a qualified prospect, bone was not leaving my mouth. I mean, it was, it was I was going to win that sucker. Right. And we sort of lost a lot of that mentality. It's like, you know, pipeline is disposable. It's like, no, it's not disposable. If they're really qualified and that, you know, then, talks to a point is are they really qualified blah 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 but but yeah yeah there's so many things i'd change bit yeah. by bit it's super super helpful as, a, as we think about kind of like what the future looks like and share these stories with with the world and um kev i don't know if you have anything else but i i'm like i'm already you, you Andy, you put my head in so many different places and, and <laughs> got me thinking which again like it's just that's one of the th reasons why we love doing this so much um yeah well that's yeah, a great like, great, great thing about podcasting i say the same thing it's, you know over five years and or four and a half years and 800 interviews it's like God, I've talked to 800 really smart people. Yeah, it's a how, lot of smart people out there, right? <laughs> right. How else could I have learned as much? I mean, a lot of things I talk about today is, you know, opinions have been shaped and formed by the guests I've had on my show. So, yeah, I, you know, lesson for anybody listening to this, if you're, you know, you never stop learning. Never. I'm, I'm, I'm much closer to the end of my career and, and I still wake up every day and think, God, something I can learn today about this business we're in. And uh, yeah, podcasts are a great way to do it, either consuming them or producing them. You, my friend, are addicted to growth. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I am. That, love it. Love it. I love that. Um, and it, for, for everyone listening, where can people go to connect, learn more? I know you got sure. the podcast. Yeah, so sales people? enablement with Andy Paul. Um, and obviously iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever uh, you listen mm -hmm. to podcasts. Uh, yeah, if you do listen to it give us a rating review. We'd love it. Uh, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, it's, uh, you know, the usual preamble LinkedIn slash in slash real Andy Paul. So, um, there's only one me and, um, then email, but yeah, go to Andy at Andy Awesome. And then in terms of like other things that are on the radar that you're looking ahead to, like you did mention a book. Is there any other things that you want to share with anybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, book. Uh, well, you know, we actually, we produced a second uh, podcast this year and that's going to be ongoing. We're doing it in seasons instead of a continuous one. And we produced Kevin, I was first... telling you about this. 
Yep. We, yep. So we did the first season. It's called Selling with Purpose. And check that out on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever. Uh, first season then. So it's interviews with you know, senior sales leaders, VP level from major corporations. So we're talking about uh, the first season. I'm sorry. So more informed by responses to the COVID pandemic. Um, but going forward, uh, yeah, we'll have new seasons coming up on that. Um, and yeah, we've got other other shows in the hopper that they'll be coming. They'll be fun. You're gonna have a network on your hands by the time this is all done. We'll see. But it's it's yeah, it's fun to do. It's it's uh, yeah, I love talking to people about this stuff because it's there's a, I feel more urgency about it now. Maybe because again, I don't see myself you know being in it for another ten to fifteen years necessarily. It's like let's start making some some change. Let's make some noise. Yeah, yeah, right. I love it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Addicted to Growth. If you learn something new, don't be shy. Let people know. The best way to learn a new skill is to practice. Day in and day out. Go execute something you just learned this week with your community. Until next time.